And welcome to The Premise. I'm Jennifer Thompson. And I'm Chad Thompson. And today we have the honor of speaking with Lorraine Newman. She was one of the original cast members of SNL. She's lived an amazing life, as you will hear all about in today's podcast. Hello. How are you, Lorraine? I'm good. How are you with your chickens? We're so good. And the chickens are good. Did we get any eggs today, Chad? Uh, I haven't left the house today. Oh. So I couldn't tell you. Lazy. <laughs> you mean the coop is not inside the house? Well, no, not yet. <laughs> there <laughs> are right. people that do that, though. They have they have chicken diapers. Chicken I diapers. noticed on Amazon. Oh, God. The anthropomorphication. Oh. Anthropomorphication. <laughs> that's it. It's just not I'll okay. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's that's where I draw the line. No diapers on my chickens. But we do. That's love another the great title. Outside. No diapers on my chickens. That's you know what? Title. That is a good title. Yeah, that could be Maybe, a song. We'll just, could we'll be just a band. Label this podcast. No diapers <laughs> on my chickens. <laughs> my chickens. Just this episode. All right. Just this one. Well, before we get started, I'd like to tell our beautiful listeners a little bit more about Lorraine. So here's her bio. From growing up in Los Angeles with movie star neighbors bearing witness to the music scene in the 1960s and seeing the rise of comedy in the early 70s to studying mime in Paris under the tutelage of Marcel Marceau, Marceau, to becoming a founding member of the seminal comedy troupe, The Groundlings, it's no wonder that Lauren Michaels offered Lorraine Newman a spot in the original cast of Saturday Night Live. There, along with famous cast members John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, Chevy Chase, Jane Curtin, Garrett Morris, and Gilda Radner, Bill Murray was passed over at first and joined in a later season. Lorraine was part of the show that changed TV and comedy forever. But it isn't all yucks and glamour. Lorraine struggled with demons, arriving in New York City with an attraction to drugs that started as a vice and grew to be an all-consuming addiction even as the sky rocketed to fame via her memorable characters on SNL. Even as she rocketed, the sky didn't rocket, <laughs> Lord. <laughs> May You Live in Interesting Times is a warm, funny, heartfelt snapshot of 1970s New York City and SNL's unexpected, unexpected rocket to success with all the giddy headiness that that entailed. After five seasons, Lorraine left SNL worked in movies and television while having adventures and relationships in Hollywood. Whoop, whoop. That, in her words, should have gotten me killed. Now, with long-term sobriety, congratulations, by the way, more than 30 you. years, awesome, she became a parent and reinvented herself as a voiceover actor and has a thriving career working on such animated favorites as Finding Nemo, Monsters, Inc., Despicable Me, Inside Out, Shrek, and minions. Lorraine, welcome to The Premise. Thank you so much. I feel like I'm at my funeral. Oh, goodness. <laughs> Hell no. <laughs> or at least Thank you for that not. intro. I appreciate it. Yeah, I know it's a long one, but I wanted, um, I wanted people to know, I, I love your bio because it says so much about all these interesting things that you've done. You've lived a really interesting life as the title indicates may you live in interesting times can you read our minds by the way what am i thinking right now um you're gonna ask me a question i i know that that's what's coming other than that i haven't the slightest idea i i gotta be honest you don't read minds anymore no no Good i don't you. 
Those but, are, uh, much healthier I love that, that I love that you pulled that out of my uh, book. <laughs> I, I that's very tasty. I like that. Well, let's start with your mother who said to you, "Do whatever you want, but whatever you do, don't go into showbiz." Yeah, she said that to her four children. And mm-hmm. um, my twin brother is a musician and composer. My older sister is uh, a teacher, a musician, a comedy writer, Emmy award-winning comedy writer. And at least our oldest brother sells ATM machines. He he fulfilled the uh, <clears throat> the request. <laughs> he was li- by the only mother. one listening. Yeah, solid business. ATMs. He's the good kid. Yeah. <laughs> at least someone did something right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I wonder, like, did you go into show business because you were told not to? Or at your core, you loved making people laugh? I mean, what happened there? Yeah, the the latter. I, um, I never imagined being an actor. You know, I just knew that I liked performing. Mm-hmm. And it's, when I look back on it now, I realize that I never thought of myself as an actor. I just pursued everything that interested me. And learned as much about it as I could. And, you know, in the course of doing that, was in a position to be a part of those things. Um, But I've said in many interviews, I was never a big picture kind of gal. So Mm. I didn't realize that this is what was, it was all leading to. I didn't get that. It's interesting. When I look at the course of your life, and God, it's so easy to do that with hindsight, right? It's like, oh, well, this led to this and led to that. It was so perfect. It seems like you were always meant to be a voiceover actor. You know, you started with SNL and improv and even miming. for. for yes, this is so useful <laughs> in voiceover. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's, I, I was going to save that for a little bit later, but I think it's very interesting how you become a voiceover actor. And we want to ask you about the process. So they give you a premise and you kind of run with it, right? Are you talking about voiceover? Yeah, voiceover. Or just more specifically, I think, like creating a voice for a character. Right. It, it depends. Sometimes I come up with it. They're very. It has happened, uh, for instance, when I did uh, The Crudes for DreamWorks. There was a character that didn't exist in the movie. And our director, Sam... Um, Sam Siegel? Regal. Sam Regal helped me build this character who was basically a Neanderthal woman. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, hmm, Patrick Warburton, that's that's the voice that I think will work for this. But he still, he really guided me through and helped me build that character. But for everything else, it was really, it was a drawing and a character description. And that's what you have to base your voice on. And there's just a lot of tricks, of course, you know, um, going against type. So, you know, if you're doing a hippopotamus, you might just give her a really delicate voice like this or something like that. You know, mm-hmm. um, it, it's just little tricks like that. But also I have like a compendium of voices. And sometimes it's just a little adjustment of a voice that I already do. Mm. And we I, heard several of those voices on the audiobook. Yeah. 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 Well, that was on purpose, <laughs> Chad. I figured. <laughs> Deliberate. I'm no dummy. Uh Well, and you know, a lot of voice actors, I know voice actors working with Audible uh, and and audiobooks in general. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes they'll have to do two different characters or many different characters. And a lot of times they'll bring in a couple different actors, but you were able to do all of them. 
and have fun with uh, it. Oh, in my book? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, as I've said, you know, I've never written anything I couldn't do, you know, and it's the same with voiceover. Um, oh, you know what? I lost my train of thought, which is happening more and more, <laughs> and I blame the pandemic. Um, totally. It's hard to co- stand. I'm sorry. What was the question? <laughs> I swear to God, attention to anything. I've lost interest in myself. (laughs) Well, we're talking about voiceovers and coming up with voices, but how you did in your own book. Yeah, yeah. On the book, in the book, I your compendium of voices. Yeah, I did all the voices, and you know, sometimes a story had to be told. Uh, For instance, um, when I did my audition for the Royal Academy, and we were all told in the office of the admissions. administrator that we were rejected uh there was a scottish kid you know who did not like that <laughs> and he he said something very rude to the guy and really really like you know incited him uh to say some really harsh things to us uh basically saying well you simply weren't good enough were you so you know these things happen and because i've always had a fascination with dialects I was able to, to the best of my ability, because I always say that my dialects are like $1.98 dialects, um, but some of them are better than others. Why $1.98? Well, because, you know, for American ears, they might be good ones, <laughs> but I, I right. quake in my boots at the thought of uh, Scottish people hearing my Scottish dialect. That <laughs> I just, I, I'm sure that there is a club somewhere in Great Britain, the I Hate Lorraine Newman and her dialects club. No. Um, I started I ha- the one in the upper Midwest about your Swedish accent. Okay. Oh, there right. you go, Chad. Bring it. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I, I can't do I'm actually <laughs> learning Swedish right now on, um, on uh, what do you call it? Oh, God. What is that app? Um, oh, like, an, a, like a Rosetta Stone, but for... Yeah. Yeah, this is terrible. I swear to God, I am losing things. Uh, Duolingo. Um, But because I had to speak Swedish in the book, um, I asked Greg Poehler, who is Amy Poehler's brother, who is married to a Swedish woman and has lived in Sweden, to help me with the lines, the pronunciation, because Mm. I couldn't remember any of it. It was also not accurate, so he corrected the Swedish. (laughs) And then it just got me interested in Swedish, and I also watch a lot of Swedish noir Hmm. On TV, I just love that that stuff. Right now, I'm watching something that's c- more along the lines of "This Is Us" called "Bonus Family," which really means, you know, uh, step family. And uh, okay. I'm actually recognizing <laughs> some of the words now. It's very exciting. So you're watching Swedish noir on television in Swedish, so that yes. you can, you know, kind of brush up on. Your- oh well, there there are subtitles, but I'm I'm recognizing, you know, kvinna. And boika, and okay. That's awesome. Are you going to go to Sweden and practice your? No, I wasn't planning on that because (laughs) boy, would I, (laughs) you know, ushakta snella, ja talarinte svenska snella engelska. That would be about it. Yeah, <laughs> it's like it. Chad and his Spanish. Yeah, I know enough Spanish to find a bathroom, order a drink, and get beat up. <laughs> One o biro. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I can do it in French too, though. So that's true in many languages. Equal I think opportunity. Japanese too. So <laughs> your your sister Tracy recalls walking by your room and hearing you talking to someone when you were a little kid. Mm-hmm. 
and and then she realized that you actually weren't it wasn't like two dolls but you were doing your voices it seems like you were destined to become a voice actor even then yeah well i part of it i attribute to the fact that my eyesight was very poor Mm. so hearing became a really big uh aspect of my existence and i listened to a lot of records of storytelling Mm. and i loved shirley temple and i had albums of her songs and greek myths and things like that so uh, you know, I really had a trained ear. And then, you know, when I was uh, growing up, I, I and when video cassettes, not video cassettes, uh, cassettes for the car came into being, I remember buying uh, at Costco, buying this whole thing of 1940s radio shows, hmm. like the Bickersons, you know, and with Don Amici and listening to that. And boy, if that's not a lesson in voice acting, uh just great great stuff so i think i learned a lot from that as well and you were just so into music i mean music's been a huge part of your life oh yeah yeah i i pursued it uh, again by myself because none of my friends were interested in the kind of music i liked hmm. um and you were so, interested in the good stuff just so we're uh, <laughs> thank you <laughs> <laughs> because my way is the only way um <laughs> But now, of course, I'm really alone because I love EDM, and I can't find anybody my age that does. <laughs> so I've been going to Coachella since 2010, and they have tents, various tents, and then two main stages. And the Sahara tent has now become totally EDM, and I just linger there the whole time. I'm there the whole time, and I love it, and I feel so alone. <laughs> I can just picture you at Coachella. I'm too old for Coachella and have been for 10 years. Oh, it's so oh, wonderful. I love it. I, I, mean, I just don't want to be hot and sweaty and yeah, dusty. Yeah, well, that is a tribute to how <laughs> enchanting it is because I don't want to be that either. Right. There's no but you way. Go anyway. Yeah, huh. I just, I don't mind it because I'm just so enraptured there's a whole feeling about it especially if you go the first weekend and there's still grass. <laughs> right. Right. Just, you know, and the art installations are all interactive, which I love. Mm. And it, it's just, uh, I love it so much. It's, it's become like a punchline, which really makes me sad. Um, mm. And, you know, it used to be two days, one weekend, and you could buy a ticket for individual days. Yeah. Now you have to buy the whole weekend and it's two weekends and it's three days. But I still, I just love it. And I've been through, like I would go with my kids, obviously, and then they'd ditch me. And, um, you know. They, they don't want to listen to EDM. They, well, one of my oldest went to Wildwood and they got to the point where they just declared a non-school day for, for the day that people went to Coachella because they were just tired of having to no deal one with nobody there. being there. Yeah, well, that which was I appreciated. But my youngest one had to get back to school on Monday. So, you know, there's this l- span of highway going from Palm Springs to L.A. that has tremendous winds. I mean, they've got like uh, power wind uh, things in, in that area. It's like a valley. And not only was the wind high, it was pouring rain, and I was falling asleep, and I have these three girls curled up in the back of my car thinking, just <laughs> praying, and I rarely pray, but praying, just let me survive this. Let me get them home safely. It was dire. <laughs> yeah, I, I've, I've sacrificed a lot to go to Coachella. <laughs> well, it seems to me some of that energy from Coachella has kind of spilled over into like the Bombay Beach Biennial. Have you 
gone to any of those or seen I don't any know that? what that is. I don't mm. know what it is. It's just, I think it's some of the artists who do the Coachella thing uh, have basically just kind of taken over a dilapidated town that's just kind of been given up to the Salton Sea. Have oh, you been to Salton Sea? Yeah. I, I have been to the Salton Sea because I was going to uh, do a music video there. Right. Uh, <laughs> you and, and everyone else. Uh, yeah. But it was, uh, it was for an environmental uh, benefit. And me and Al Yankovic wrote this song called We're Going Outside because these kids were going on a date, but they had to put on all this hazmat suit <laughs> and everything because we're going outside. And of course, it never happened. But it's kind of like his Christmas at Ground Zero. Oh, it, that's right. So, you know, we, we did a location scout at the Salton Sea. And wow, that's just a whole other world. Isn't it, though? Yeah. With, you know, an actually dead sea. And not yeah. in a good way. You know, not no. with like <laughs> wonderful mud to put on your body. It's just like toxic. It's and, dead and, you know. Yeah, but that's and, not true. That's not totally true. I mean, there's birds. It's a really important for for birds that are migrating, and there's a lot of good things that are happening there. For I'm well, glad to, to hear detox. it. <laughs> yeah, but it's not always poisonous. I think that's a certain time when the um, when the bloom happens, right? Isn't that right. how it works? And, so it and gets then all the tilapia hot, die. And then the tilapia die, and it creates you know, botulism. And then the seagulls die of botulism. It's it's oh, crazy. But gnarly. then, <laughs> but then, but oh. then it like kind of comes full circle, and people eat fish out of that. Really? Body of water. Man, yeah. I don't know if they do still, but well, they I wonder. Oh. I mean, it could. It's at least a good. I mean, did I have kids by this point? Because my oldest is almost thirty. It was at least twenty years ago. Maybe some of the the toxicity has worked itself out. I don't know, but mm. it's just it's so surreal with hotels that stopped being built. Yeah, you know, totally. It's just amazing. We were just there actually a couple weeks ago. We took my niece, our niece, I should say. And it's pretty amazing. It's so beautiful. The art is so dilapidated. The buildings are so broken that they've, they're almost beautiful in their own right. You know? I understand. So what kind of music do they have there? Uh, well, it's an invite only and I am not You can get on, on the, list, the list, Lorraine, and then you can get us on the there list. There you go. Okay. Well, I got to look it up. <laughs> invite only. Wow. Yeah. Um, last I heard, they weren't doing this. They didn't do last year, and I don't think they're doing this year. Ah, oh, yeah. because of because the of pandemic. Yeah, yeah. So. There's no Coachella either. What is the name of that documentary about the Salton Sea? Oh, the plagues and pleasures of the Salton Sea. You should watch it. I'm it is definitely so going to check that out. As narrated by John Waters. You're going to love it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, that's perfect. It totally. really is. Damn. Well, <laughs> back to your book. <laughs> yes. <laughs> these Here's all these fun times. things to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about something not as fun. I want to talk Jesus, about. I know. I know. But it's good segue. It's, I'm, it's I'm the main it. theme mm -hmm. in your book. You know, you suffered from depression and this deep seated insecurity for years. And, you know, you talk in your book how you always felt like you were the ugly one, you weren't funny enough, you weren't good enough. And, Honestly, it's not surprising because as a kid, it sounds like, well, first of all, you wore a body brace for two and a half years yes. during your formative years. Yes. And your relationship <laughs> with your mom, who was a, a bit abusive and neglectful, it seemed like you kids were always competing for her af affection. And how did th those experiences sort of lead to your, your depression? Do you think that it was more... Well, I'm, I'm learning through therapy mm -hmm. that um, neglect 
still, you know, I mean, my God, there's all forms of deprivation. Well, there's all forms of deprivation and and, uh, trauma associated with, you know, the formative years when you're an infant, starting from when you're an infant. So neglect can constitute a trauma because a baby determines their feeling of self-worth through their, you know, contact with their parent or their, the main person, their mother. And, you know, I, of course, went in the opposite direction. I'm completely in my kids' faces all the time. <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, no, I really, I was on my own and I formed my own opinions about, you know, what I was worth, um, uh, how, how I had to work really hard for things that most kids are really entitled to, mm-hmm. which is, you know, I mean, I, I was so in love with my babies and my children, and I still am. And I can't imagine it being any other way, but I did not have anything. I was just in a crib with a twin also. Mm-hmm. who was also needing the same kind of attention. But my mom, I mean, my poor mother went through a lot, and she had two kids by the time she was 19. And so when we came along, she'd had it. And, mm. you know, she just and twins wasn't too. interested. She wasn't yeah. interested. Mm. You really looked after Paul, your brother. Mm-hmm. It seemed like you, you were kind of his caregiver. And Tracy was yours. I mean, she was yes. like... Your person. Tracy was wonderful and still is. And, and you know, <laughs> any kind of self-esteem I might have, um, I, I just attribute to the love that she lavished on both of us. Um, you know, she just really enjoyed us. She really, hmm. like, loved everything that we did, and, and we were like her dolls. But, <laughs> you know, her support has continued all through my life. That's beautiful. I know she was a big part of you, basically all of your career turns. I mean, the gr- starting with the Groundlings. Yes, and- absolutely. But even like as a 14-year-old meeting Richard Pryor, because he was her friend from New York, and he was, you know, performing at the Troubadour, if you can imagine that. <laughs> and, you awesome. know, so she had the whole family come and see him. And I, would always, I was already a fan from seeing him on Merv Griffin and the Ed Sullivan show, but you know, he, he just couldn't have been nicer to our whole family. And I was in my fabulous brace at the time. Mm. But uh, when you met him. Yeah. But when he hosted the show, I, I just, I went up to him and said, ah, I don't know if you remember me, but I'm uh, Tracy Newman's little sister. And his face <laughs> lit up and uh, we had a good time. I, I had homemade soup that I made every day and he tasted it and wanted it every day so I was making soup for him every day it was just one of the highlights of my life one of the things I get from your book is that you feel deeply you're I get the sense that you're an empath and you love to make people laugh you love to cook for people and if they enjoy it there's like nothing better Mm -hmm. than to like I don't know. I think you maybe feel more deeply than other people. And I wonder if that didn't contribute to your drug use because it was easier to not feel so deeply in such a an industry that can be so harsh, especially when it comes to feelings, right? Yeah. Well, that's a really astute observation. Um, I, I think they call it codependent. <laughs> um, but I, I do love... Um, 
for me, it's a form of communication and knowing that uh, I'm not out here on my own. I mean, that's what it was like for me when people responded to the stuff that I wrote, the characters I performed. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like, oh, you see that too. I'm not so all alone, you know. That's yes. what it was always for me. Um, but I am empathic, I think, just from being a twin. And also, you know, a lot of the time, the things that I intuited were right. So when I went out into the world, I thought I was always right about these negative projections I had uh, about what others saw, how others saw me, which was incredibly painful. And nine times out of 10 throughout my life, I've found out that I'm completely wrong, happily, Mm. you know, Mm -hmm. but don't think it didn't torture me. You know, it just, it was a terrible place to be. And it's taken years for me to overcome that belief. I think my favorite part of your book is, is the last hour when you talk about how you've come to a point where, you know, you've learned to love yourself. You don't Mm -hmm. turn on yourself like you used to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I realized, I mean, you know, you hear this said to you 50 million times, you would never treat someone else the way you treat yourself. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you actually, there comes a time when you actually hear that. And I did. And I, I, there's an intervention that happens now to where I have, you know, I'm never going to get rid of that. I'm never going to get rid of that ailment or whatever it is you want to call it. But I now have tools to intervene with that kind of thinking that tells me that even if I'm even partially right, what good does it do me? Mm-hmm. You know? And who cares what they think? Yeah. <laughs> Ultimately, you know, would you like a person that saw people that way? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's go back to you moved to New York. You're mm-hmm. you're going to appear for I think it was 13 weeks. Right. And you've brought everything with you. Everything <laughs> yes. that's important to you, your yes. record collection. First, well, you traveled across country in a Volkswagen bug. I know. <laughs> Such a, How did you make your first it for mistake. one? <laughs> well, we camped out and we stayed in, me and my boyfriend, Arthur, we stayed in motels and things like that. I must say our country is so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, waking up in Sedona mm-hmm. and, you know, <laughs> opening the drapes to the, our room and seeing a landscape that doesn't look like this planet. Yeah. It's pink. It's not pink if you squint your eyes. It's pink. Yeah. You know, it has all the same architecture rock-wise as the Grand Canyon, and those are kind of more fall colors. But um, this was pink. Uh, the sand was pink. It was just glorious. But yes, we drove cross-country in the, in the little bug and um, stayed in the village for like four days. And then, you know, that was finished. And so we stayed at a midtown hotel and our car was stolen the next day. Ah, oh, terrible. That's what happens in midtown. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Blame Never it on midtown. Never going to midtown. <laughs> but I think the thing that's the most heartbreaking isn't, I mean, the record collection is really heartbreaking, but... All of your writings, everything you'd practice and everything that gave you confidence from the groundlings was just (laughs) gone. Yeah. And, you know, I needed that stuff very much. I hadn't performed it in, you know, at least three months. And Mm. Lorne asked me to put on a show for the writers so that they could see the characters I did. Mm. And, you know, that was a reasonable request. But 
because I didn't have my materials so that I could accurately represent what I did, compounded by incredible stage fright, it was not a good foot forward. It was not a good foot forward. Um, and I just thought of a joke, which is time has passed, which is typical of me, but forget it, Jake. It's Midtown. Anyway. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that was a very bad start for me. And um, I always felt like I was scrambling to make up for that first impression. It set the tone for your entire experience, I mm -hmm. think. It really did. I really had to, you know, the ways in which I grew as a performer helped me to get as far as I did, which, you know, considering is, you know, it's modest. I, I would have liked to have made more of an impression on the show. Mm. I recognize what an incredible opportunity it is. And that, that's been hard to kind of live down, but it takes what it takes. And I'm you know how it is. If you're grateful and you're happy, you can't really dwell on that stuff because mm -hmm. I, look at how much I have now. I feel so lucky. Yeah. Yeah. And you talk about gratitude at the end of your book, which I think is really lovely. You know, I work with a lot of memoirists. I Oh, okay. Yeah. So I'm one of the co-founders of the San Diego Writers Festival. The oh. premise is the official podcast of the San Diego Writers Festival. And you are going to be appearing at the San Diego Writers Festival on July 17th. That's right. And, you know, we, Marnie Friedman, she's my co-founder. I know Chad's looking at me like, where are you going with this? <laughs> <laughs> like, is this an ad in the middle of our podcast? I, I can't wait. <laughs> Tell me more. But the reason that we founded the, the festival to begin with is because storytelling and stories change lives, you know, and mm -hmm. memoir is so powerful. And you said this a little earlier that, you know, the reason that we tell stories is because we don't feel so alone. Mm -hmm. And yeah. at the end of your memoir, you said, I know that, you know, most memoirs are supposed to wrap up in a certain way. Um, and you almost were sort of saying that yours didn't, but it does. It's so beautiful because you've had this incredible experience in your life of everything that you've done. And at the very end of it, what do you come back to but yourself and feeling gratitude mm -hmm. and feeling love for yourself? And I just think that's so beautiful. Oh, thank you. Well, yeah. I um, believe it or not, infinite jest. <laughs> really, uh, you that read book, it? I haven't read all of it. Let's okay. be honest. Okay, well, she's honest. I, I like haven't it. read all of it. But, you know, the stuff that I did read, it was so surgical in its inner life. Um, the way he describes, you know, he has a character that can't really speak. So mm -hmm. he describes the inner life of that character so, uh, I can't even say, I mean, surgical is the word, in such a surgical manner. But it, that it informed my writing. It helped mm -hmm. me to learn how to really uh, go really deep, so to speak. Mm. You know, as and you just, do. I'm yeah. capable of going because I don't like being deep at all. But <laughs> it really did um, help me to uh, do that kind of thing. Was it cathartic writing this book? Yes, it was. And as I've said uh, in some interviews, the reason for writing the book changed over a period of time, and, and it started out as, you know, kind of a, a justification for what I deemed, you know, my failure. Right. And then right. it turned into I, me realizing that, hey, I was, I was there for that. Well, I know that person. I knew them before they were 
hey, and I was there for that. And then that really gave me the key to take all of the material that I've written over the years and say, don't need that, don't need that, that'll be good here, hmm. et cetera. Mm-hmm. And I understand that you started writing this book many times and you just oh, kept God. putting it back in a drawer. Oh, God. Well, I'm so <laughs> disorganized. I mean, you know, it's not as bad as having thing on, things written on napkins and, and matchbooks. But, you know, <laughs> I, as I said, I tried this thing nine times and each of those drafts had stuff in it that I thought was good, but I couldn't find it because mm-hmm. there was just so much to go through. And some of the stuff I was talking about really made me sad and angry and depressed. Oh, I bet. Yeah. So that was another thing. That was another wall that I, I would hit in trying to rewrite it. And sometimes I just try to skip those areas, but I still, you know, didn't quite know where I was going with it and um, what my reason for writing it, other than just saying, you know, I still was aware of the fact that I had a lot of ex- interesting experiences, and I wanted—I always wanted to talk about that too. Yeah. But uh, it really came into focus during the tenth and final draft. Uh, <laughs> I was going to ask Audible. how many. Yeah. How long did it Ten. take to write it? For when they contacted you and you finally finished it? It took about a year. Oh, that's yeah. not bad. Yeah. Yeah. What was your writing process like? Well, I worked with a fellow named Paul Slansky who uh, I knew he was my editor for an article I wrote for Esquire when I was still on SNL. And we just remained friends after that. And he helped Carrie Fisher with her first book. And Mm. I think uh, Norman Lear. And uh, we were at lunch and I said, yeah, I got this offer from Audible and I don't know what I'm going to do. It's so disorganized. (laughs) He said, well, I'll help you. So uh, really, he, I gave him what I had, which was the most current draft. And uh, we just went from there. And it went through many incarnations in the sense that, you know, uh, there were certain things that I wanted to talk about that I realized were too personal. Because, as you know, in a memoir, you're very exposed. So Mm -hmm. you have to decide what you're willing to let people know. Exactly. And, you know, I was torn between, God, this is a good story, but do I want anybody to know that I farted in front of Prince. Oh. Or, you know, this was was an interesting way to lose your virginity. But God, do I want anybody to know this? Well, it is interesting, you know. So, and it also had an impact on my life. So, of course, that was the decision I made. I didn't talk about all the work that I've done because this wasn't about my brilliant career. It was about, if I ever talked about work, it was in a context of either, you know, uh, self-discovery or um, being brought to my knees. Yeah, yeah. And that's what memoir is all about, is that, you know, that raw, gritty honesty that makes people go, oh, wow, or yes, I've been there, I get that, I'm not alone. Yeah, I mean, the, some of the most gratifying thing, things that have been said to me about the book um, from friends and strangers is I related so much, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, you know, people that I know that I, f- from the outside seem completely confident and self-possessed saying that they identified with, uh, the self-doubt and the feelings of being less than, mm-hmm. uh, and that's like a revelation, of course, you know, we all have that, but you just... Mm-hmm. 
you just assume that nobody feels the way I do. And then you find out mostly everybody does. I'm the only one who's a fraud. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Just me. Busted. (laughs) Damn it. Damn it. I wanted to talk about just the fact that, you know, you experienced a time in history that can never be repeated. SNL was at the forefront of something totally new and different. You guys pushed the envelope of what could say be said on television, um, a lot of times because you were live and no one yeah. could censor you. Well, also our time slot uh, enabled us to be uh, a little more um, explicit with language and co- and concepts, but... I've realized that, you know, uh, shows like your show of shows and Carol Burnett and Laughing even were very mainstream. And this was what would now be considered alt comedy. Um, and we were doing stuff that we, we thought was funny, but we were really of a generation that had never really been on TV before. Nobody looked like us and nobody thought like us. And it was really a wonderful confluence of minds that had original comedy perspectives, all of us, each and every one of us. And so that's, I think, what made it so magical. And the fact that Lorne recognized this and celebrated it by having us all there. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Yeah. You mentioned in your book your favorite skit from SNL. Oh, yes. The beatnik sketch. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that uh that is so deep that sketch and it was a um i feel like it had to be michael o'donohue but i i i've also felt that it was tom schiller too but i found out that it was really rosie schuster and ann beats so you never know with a lot of help <laughs> from steve martin but i i feel like tom had to have contributed his his flavor is all over that sketch and so is michael o'donohue's but it was um, it was an ensemble p- sketch, and Steve Martin. I think it was the second time he hosted, and even the way the, the sketch was shot, because we see like a long shot and it comes in closer, and we see O'Donohue and Jane in profile, and they're kind of not beatniks. They're kind of trying to observe the scene, so to speak. And O'Donohue, I think, is telling the tail end of a sick joke. And uh, and then come the <laughs> acts that they see. And Danny is kind of like this Lord Buckley host with bongos. Bongos, so emblematic of that whole scene. So awful. Um, <laughs> and so everybody, you know, successively Chevy uh, as a, a guitar player and, you know... Um, who actually plays Ger- guitar, apparently. Yeah, he's a very good musician. Yeah. Um, Garrett is a blind Negro somebody, you know, and he was great. And I think Jane has a line where she says so sincerely, I think we have so much to learn from Negroes. And, um, you know, Belushi is the sick comic who whose jokes only resonate with the band. So he's only getting laughs from the band, which is... Right. So inside, and I was the modern, the angry Jewish poetess, modern dancer. <laughs> so they they touched every everything in in what we knew to be elements of that beatnik era. Right, and I, I just you know if you can ever go back and watch it, I, I highly recommend it. That that was something that stood out to me is the fact that throughout the entire book, it's like 
I'm listening to you talk about these scenarios and I'm like, oh shit, I can just look that up. Yeah. Yeah. I can go to YouTube and see that's uh, right. Land shark. You know, yeah. I can I can go to YouTube and I can see all these things. And it's like I recognize a lot of these names that you're dropping throughout the book. And I'm like, that sounds vaguely familiar. And then I look them up and I'm like, oh yeah. Yeah. That character actor from, you know, all of these amazing things I've seen. Yeah, our right. entire lifetime. Well, for me, I kept ha like being transported back to my childhood and having these visions of my mom and dad laughing and just like our, I could almost smell our house because ah. so much of SNL was part of my childhood. And oh. yeah, it was really, it was pretty cool. It was fun listening oh. to it, but it, it was especially fun listening to you talk about these experiences from your perspective especially since you were so insecure about a lot of them and you mm -hmm. didn't see yourself as this amazing person who made, has made such an effect on so many people's lives i don't think anybody does yeah you know? i think you're right yeah which is why you're why you're even more loved too oh. you know, because if you think about it, the person who was like, I am amazing. I have done so many amazing things. Look at me. We, no one wants, to, no one wants well, to look at that person I don't think anymore, anybody right? in their right mind would write that way. Mm. But I think that um, in some of the biographies that I've read, they've just kept on a very uh, superficial plane. Uh, I remember reading Alec Guinness's autobiography, and it was so hidden. There was something about it that he just was not going there and it was boring hmm. yeah you can tell can't you yeah they're not opening the door open yeah. the door what's in there exactly totally <laughs> chad has a question about your record co collection that you sent to paris well yeah uh -huh. you do. it's like so i'm imagining just like a ton of crates going to paris and how much that must have cost we collect yeah. vinyl, by the way, so we have an understanding of shipping vinyl. <laughs> well, just you know, moving you, it for the past it, forty years of my life. Yeah, it was like triage. You know, you had to pick the ones that you the really had ones. to have, and so you know, um, well, Taj Mahal, of course, who you and met. I know, I know. What, hiking? I was exercising, <laughs> hiking, 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 while I was pregnant. Yeah, with my dog Rykuder, it was perfect. Um. Well, the, the funny thing is like all the all these people like are these famous people like we've heard of all these names and mm -hmm. they're in your orbit and like now you're hiking and i i i thought for sure she's gonna say she ran into p22 to who p22 the uh the famous mountain lion that lives in the hollywood hills uh, <laughs> we were waiting just, i'm like i just started like, hearing about p22 <laughs> yeah oh many a rattlesnake but no mountain lion yeah mm. it's probably better that way it is better that way well i do want to know like was it wildly expensive to ship vinyl back then or what was your record collection was it a box i think it or? was in my luggage it was actually oh. in my luggage so you know okay. who knew i mean who yeah. knew what it was exposed to but nothing warped crazily huh. enough and it wasn't my entire record collection as i said i had to be really select because of traveling and everything and my essentials what i had to have and you know, Bessie Smith and Muddy Waters, a lot of blues, lots and mm -hmm. lots of blues, uh, but also R&B. I mean, I just started listening to R&B when I was four, and I just, I've always cottoned to it. It's just always been a favorite sound for me. 
And it's totally. changed over the years. It's it's not what it it's not what it used to be, kids. I tell you that right now. Um, <laughs> because I I was listening. I liked Motown, but I also liked Stax. S-T-A-X. I was going to say Stax was better. Come on, Stax. I'm telling you. In fact, did you see that documentary on Stax? We did. Oh God, is that great? Finding out that Otis Redding was the roadie for some other band, and he kept saying, "Please let me record something." <laughs> oh God. Oh, you I know love what? Stuff you, like that. You have to watch. You've probably you've probably already seen it. Probably already seen it. Uh, Tours from the tail bus. Wait, tales from <laughs> tales the tour, from bus. tour bus. I get it wrong. Every no. Time. No. Oh, Tales man. from the tour bus. That's um, uh, Mike Judge. Mike Judge. What? Where yeah. is it a parody? Oh no! It's, no, it's, it's like he he will he. It's an animated series, and oh. it's there's he. I think he picks a genre for each season. He did country western, did country and western, one. and then he did uh, funk. Mm-hmm. And blue. funk and R and B in there. I can't Print. believe I've never heard of this. It's oh, it's outrageous. So good. It's so good. So good. Oh my God, I'm writing this down right now. Tales yes. from the tour bus. <laughs> non tours from the tail <laughs> bus, although that does sound good. Yeah, in a I don't totally know. different way. I don't know how you manage that. <laughs> <laughs> she, she, is, she excels at uh, butchering colloquialisms too. It's weird. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's this weird Malaprops. thing. It's like a talent. That's great. Uh-huh. <laughs> Who doesn't love malaprops? <laughs> See, I have a talent. I think it's time for the lightning round. Oh, geez. Are you up for it, Lorraine? Sure, yeah. Just a short She said round. not knowing what it meant. Hey, me neither. This is the first <laughs> time we've done it. So I'm going to try to pull my, my best Don Pardo. But let's give some rules. So Chad's just going to say something, and you just get to say whatever comes to mind, whether it's a line or a story. It's totally up to you. So it's, it's okay. literally just a list that I have in front of me, and, and uh, you react. And okay. go. That's terrific bass. Mmm, drinking cold uh, lobster bisque. Is that what that was? Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow, nice. they couldn't just like... But on the 40th anniversary, it was strawberry ice cream. Was it oh, that's way better. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so good to know. Mm. Cold lobster. That's, oh, yeah. Whose really? idea was that? I, the prop master. Oh. <laughs> And did you know what it was before you drank it? Yes, I did. Oh. <laughs> I did. Well, well, you, you pulled it off. Yes. Thanks. <laughs> Thumbs down, Lamb Pit. I have no idea what that is. Oh. Thumbs down, Lamb Pit. You no. were playing the part of Rod Reuter's daughter. Oh, God. From uh, We Are All Devo? Yeah. Yes. No, I don't. I don't remember any of that. Oh, see, that was such a part of my childhood. Mm-hmm. I was an absolute Devo fanatic. Totally. Oh, they're so good. <laughs> they are so good. Totally. Um, I have eggplant story. Oh, dear God. Well, another story that is humiliating and <laughs> worth it. <laughs> All right. Um, let's see. We have the pink box. The pink box. At least that's what they called Are it on sure SNL. I don't I, know maybe, what that maybe is. Maybe my fat fingers typed it wrong. <laughs> but it was a scene with you and Gilda and this nondescript pink box and the feminine product. Oh, yes. Yeah. We, we just, I, I think I keep asking her what it is. Right. And it's a feminine product, and she just says how fresh it makes you feel. All this, you know, everything but touching it, you know. 
everything but talking about what it actually was. Right. One of my favorites, by the way. Oh, good. Thanks. <laughs> uh, playing Pictionary. Oh, well, I did it a lot, but I, I did it with uh, Shelley Duvall. That was the first time I, I played it, and and that was when Gina Davis and Jeff Goldblum were married, and they played it too. And a lot of penises. <laughs> a lot of them. That part in the book when you just like, you drop so many lines where just randomly, oh, and I was playing Pictionary with Shelley Duvall and, and Gina Davis and, you know. Well, that was to really illustrate what my life was like. Yeah, that's just know? how it was. Yeah, yeah. Everyone was famous mm -hmm. in your life. Yeah. One of the things that, are you done with your lightning round, Chad? I mean, I, there were a couple other ones, but you know what? I, 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 <laughs> you're like, it's so not. I, I'm thinking that the conversation we had going before was maybe a little bit better than the lightning I, round. I'm tired of her saying, I don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty What much. the hell's wrong oh, with you? No, there's, there's one. Okay, what do you got? The aristocrats. Mm. Oh, boy. Okay, well, I think by now most people know what the aristocrats joke is. And it's either scatological or incest. Mm -hmm. The first person to tell me that joke was Chevy, and he acted it out, and he did the incest version. And the first line is, guy goes to a booking agent. And it goes on to say, I got a terrific family act for you, mother, daughter, father, son. And then he goes on to describe these just appalling sexual acts. Mm -hmm. And the punchline <laughs> is, and what are they called? The aristocrats. And, you know, I, there are times when I've laughed really hard in my life, and that is right up there, you know, because Chevy's, you know, obviously his physical comedy is so great, but he was the first person. He was my first aristocrat. <laughs> well, and he told you, I guess he told you this joke, and then later he called you. He heard you were in a car oh, accident. Oh, yeah. Years later, I was in a car accident. I had broken my ribs, which is really painful. I mean, you think you will never feel okay again. Breathing yeah. hurts. Now, forget laughing. Right. And he tracks me down at my boyfriend's house. The phone rings. I pick it up. No, hello. No, it's Chevy. Nothing. It's just guy goes to a booking agent. And oh, the you pain. Lost it. I was, oh God, the pain. I was laughing so hard. But it was so moving to me. It was such a sweet, ultimately, you know, it was a lovely thing to do. It was a lovely, mean thing to do. Right. Did you ever yeah. get your ribs reset? No. I no. know John, John Candy said I should do that. Yeah. Oh my God, listen to me. <laughs> well, I, you know, I had met him at this party for Second City, and I met all of the people at SCTV, which I, I just worshipped them. And, you know, I told John Candy, and that was also, because of that, and also a thing I had seen by John Cleese called Arthur Sherlock Holmes. Both those incidents made it so that the rib never really healed properly. And, and John Candy was like, oh, Lorraine, you should get it broken again. That's not You're good. like, oh, hell no. <laughs> no, no. Does it bother happening. you? Uh, well, I, you know, I'm not going to bore you, but, you know, the reason <laughs> I wore the brace was because I have a spinal deformity and it's only gotten worse as I've aged. So, mm. you know, there are just all sorts of things going on here. You don't want to know. <laughs> we start out in a brace, we end in a brace. That's right. Well, I have an idea for your next book. I think it should be called Shut the Fuck Up. How to Rid Yourself of Negative Demons. What do you think? I like it. That's really good because God knows we need more self-help books. 
Amen. <laughs> I, I'm going to have a whole room full of them. Actually, I've never been able to read self-help. I'm, I don't know why. Do you read I, self-help? I know because I've learned, I, you know, to, I'm honest with myself about a lot of things. And that is you usually cherry pick those books and then they just gather dust on your shelf. That's right. Uh, the only one, and I don't even know if it could be called a self-help book, but I think that the movie Mean Girls was based on that. And it's a book called Queen Bees and Wannabes. And it, it, it absolutely illustrates the anatomy of cliques. And it is fascinating. And, you know, I, my older kid never went through that because they were never... They were not that kind of person. They had a lot of boyfriends, and they were just interested in non-girly things. But my younger one was always part of a clique, and she was always the target. And it just, it was so painful to watch. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it, it just, that is a really great book. Hmm. Tell us the name again. Queen Bees and Wannabes. Your children, speaking of. Mm -hmm. They're both following in your footsteps. What, did, what do you think about that? Well, they both have a really good work ethic. And more importantly, having gone to Beverly Hills High School and gone to school with a lot of the children of famous people, if you have talent, great. If mm -hmm. you don't, it's tragic. My kids are really talented, I got to say. I mean, I really uh, would Says be Says every harder. mother ever. I know, it's true. <laughs> but, you know, I would have been harder on them if they didn't. Uh, I, mm. I really, I mean, without so much as like trying to destroy their dreams, I would make sure that they had a backup plan like my parents did having me go to Sawyer Business College where I found cocaine. But anyway, um, <laughs> they both are just so funny and so smart and, uh, you know, so much better than I ever was, even though they do stand up and I don't. But um, boy, they're, I'm really proud of them. Mm. And they're both on HBO shows. I mean, it's not, and it, it's, it's so sad because I, I posted about my younger one who's on an HBO Max show that's in production. And someone wrote on, posted, uh, oh, cool, her mom got her a job. Mm. You know, and first of all, nobody has that power. Nobody. Right. And least of all me. You know, you got to have the goods. <laughs> no one's going to invest in someone that's not good. Mm. So I had to take it down because I just didn't want her to be subjected to any more of that bullshit. But boy, trolls can just suck my dick. Yeah. Amen <laughs> to that. <laughs> So true. Wow. You know, and that's, you hear that a lot too, where people attribute the success of the kid to the parent. And, and I that guess can't never, happen. It, it just can't. Happen. can't. Yeah. It doesn't matter how, how famous you are. If you don't have talent, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. Well, this has been a really, really awesome conversation. Thank you so much for writing this book, for being so just being so honest and in so many ways so humble, but also for being so damn funny. Oh, um, thank you. Thank I laughed you out so loud much. so many times and oh. we had such a good time. I know Chad has one more burning question for you. Okay. Well, see this, this, of course, you know, with me, it's always going to tie back to music, right? Okay. So given that your musical tastes have changed over the years, what would your five desert island records be now? Mm-hmm. 
Well, uh, Scary Monsters by Skrillex. Um, some, anything by David Bowie. Uh, Wilson Pickett's Greatest Hits. Uh, that's three. <laughs> You're more than halfway there. Yeah. Um, oh, my God. I wish I'd had time to prepare this answer because, of course, I'll be waking up at three in the morning going, why didn't I think of this Why one? didn't I that's put right. the White uh, Album? Oh, Tame Impala. Tame Impala. Um, what is it? It's uh, lo- Lonerism. Tame Impala. Lonerism. Uh, that's the fourth Oh, get out. You know, Grizzly Bear, Seager Rose. I, I just, there's so much. There's some so pretty, much. pretty modern choices there. Yeah. Considering, yeah. I, you know, I, I thought listening to the book, it was going to be heavy on the R&B side. Well, Wilson Pickett. Yeah. 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 That's, that's a pretty, you know, catch all. I'm trying well, to think of what I'm one. listening to now. Um, there's so much different stuff. There's this Israeli girl named Netta. Barassi or something like that. And she has a, um, she's just, her sound, she won Eurovision, okay? But don't let that dissuade you. Her sound is really good. She's just so I'm good. I'm hearing echoes of ABBA. Yeah, well, but no, she's, she's a, what do they call it? You know what Reggie Watts does where he builds a, oh, he's right. a she's a looper. She loops. She loops. Okay. Yeah. So, and that's what she did. I saw the, the footage of her stuff on Eurovision and she's just, fantastic uh she did uh i'm a party girl her version of it but she's just great i've been listening to her um and um oh what is that band that did that song con con oh christ this is gonna be so worthwhile low the band low i like them a lot cool Uh, they they have a, a song um, oh Christ! Congregation, Congregation—that's a great song. Nice. And I've been listening to uh, <laughs> Bob Marley. Oh no, Tits Mayall's version of Louie Louie. Mm. <laughs> that's what I'm listening to. That's awesome. Black Keys. I would have to have Black Keys Love on the, the Black island. Keys. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. All right, we've we've gone way past five. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Isley Maybe Brothers. You... Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, this has been really awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. I, these were interesting and fun questions, too. I, I get answer, asked the same ones over and over, and this was not that. And well, I good. really I enjoyed that a lot. Good. Well, we've really enjoyed getting to know you in your book and having you here. We really look forward to seeing you at the festival. Dear listener, you can follow Lorraine on her Instagram account and Twitter. They are both at Lorraine Newman. And please buy her book, May You Live in Interesting Times. It's an Audible original, and you can get it at audible.com. This has been another episode of The Premise. Visit us online at thepremisepod.com. Follow us on Twitter at podpremise, and subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Until next week, remember to love yourself and to have gratitude. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.
San Diego Writers Festival.com.